Good morning. This is Brian Kaplan, Professor of Economics at George Mason University, doing a guest podcast for the Salem Center. I am back in the studio with anthropologist Luigi Achille of the European University Institute and the Christian Michelson Institute in Bergen. Uh, Last episode, we talked about Luigi's work on human smuggling. This time, we turn to his research on Palestinian refugees. Welcome back, Luigi. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Nice to be back. All right, let's go right in. Your earlier research is based on your long stay in the Palestinian refugee camp of Al-Widat. Am I saying that correctly? Uh, Wahdat. Al-Wahdat. Al-Wahdat in Amman, Jordan. Uh, most Americans will immediately picture a bunch of tents surrounded by a fence. Could you quickly explain what refugee camps in Jordan are actually like? Yeah, actually, the image of the picture of bunches of tents surrounded by a fence is nothing farther from the truth in the case of Palestinian camps in Jordan. I mean, it's a pity that I cannot show you a, a photo of how the camp was established, how it was when it was established, and how it is now. Washtat was established, well, in the 19, if I'm not mistaken, 1955, it was so around 70 years ago at the outskirts of Amman. And now is um, some some way two kilometers south southeast from the the city center of Amman. And now is completely incorporated by the the, the 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 physical expansion of the city. So it's part of the city. The camp is now much bigger than it was originally. Even though the uh, administrative I mean its administrative borders remains untouched. The physically speaking, it's we can say the camp is much bigger than it was originally. The shelters have become homes. Refugees have changed the camp and personalized what was meant to be a bureaucratic and aseptic space for refugees now into a home for Palestinians abroad. Now, I can go on and on and speak about that for and how it's changed for, for, for hours. So feel free to jump in and stop me when you think it's the case because then people are getting bored. Yeah, yeah sure. But, yeah, but like no tents and no fence. So no, it's just, like just another city you- block and someone says that's a refugee camp. Yeah, exactly. Just to give you an idea of how it is that the, 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 um, it's changed the camp. And I mean, now, I mean, a relevant trade trade development occurred in the, in the, especially in the Western area of Wadat. Now, from the early to the late 90s, the numbers of um, business activities has grown exponentially. For example, I think in the 90s now, there was almost, well, right now there are over 2,000 uh, business uh, activities. This is in a space where where trade and business was forbidden originally. So even the type and variety of this activity have changed. So in these camps, you have from, I mean, activity family-based, generally grocery stores and jewelers, shops, to and to many others, such as pharmacies, outlets, estate, even estate agencies, blacksmiths, mechanic, fast food, barbershops, boutiques, and so on and so forth. Now, a state agency in particular is, great, is, is quite striking because you cannot sell and, uh, or, or rent the uh, housing units in the camp. But business, so one, one block over, you could do that. Exactly, but they still do it. Anyway, they do it. They sell and they rent uh, business, uh, sorry, the housing unit, even within the camp. They just don't care. So uh, there, is even, uh, there is even room for medium, large scale business activities, such as a modern supermarket, a fancy boutique, the type of boutique that recalls street shops like H&M or Zara. Now, one of, if you think about now, Wachdat is hosting one of the biggest, if not the biggest, open market in Jordan. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean what, what is the rationale for saying you aren't allowed to rent or sell a house in a refugee camp? 
it just seems like you're saying that if you're a refugee, you're still, you know, we're trying, or are they like deliberately trying to say you're stuck here forever? Or like, if you leave, then you lose your house. What's yeah. the, even the motivation for stopping them? Well, it's precisely the other way around. The motivation is that the space of the camp needs to remain a temporary space until the solution of the Palestinian issue has is not been settled. So if and, and, who, you, and who says this? Is it Palestinians? Is it Jordanian officials? Who's or is it the UN? Well, it was both the UN, Palestinians, and the Jordanians in this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean the, the space of the camp needs. I mean, at least in theory, needs to remain untouched. However, I mean, daily strategy, Palestinian refugees, daily strategies, coping, coping strategies have eventually led to the transformation of the space of the camp. And as I say, the camp was, was built to be an aseptic and bureaucratic space for refugees, and that's become a place for Palestinians. And I mean, it's um, just to give you an idea, I mean, to, to get back to the, the, to the shelters, I mean, not only the residents of the camp, the camp dwellers have moved outside, but they even split up the units among family components, and they've sold them both and rent these units to, to other people, including, including other migrants, such as Egyptians. And today, many units have lost any memory of the original owner. And, I mean, saying uh, that you can't, you know, you're not allowed to sell your house in the camp until we settle the Palestinian issue seems a lot like saying you can't sell until we cure cancer. It's like, well, what does that have well, to do with me? Well, Palestinians in the first, if, if this is an a highly complex uh, issue, because Palestinians refugees in the beginning, they actually were the first to protest any changes in the person in the in the in the space of the camp, because they wanted when the camp was established, they wanted and they still want actually. They were very very much committed to return or to be compensated for um, for their expulsion or for their exodus, depending on what type of approach you want to adopt mm -hmm. uh, from Palestine, from the, the territory of ori ori the original territory of Palestine. Um, so they protest any change of the space in the space of the camp. Eventually, what happened was that they had to, when, they, when it turned out that the camp, that any short-term solutions to, to the issue was, well, far from, from being, well, I mean, um, accomplishable. I mean, they start to, um, slowly, slowly to settle down and to change the camp. Was it, if you want to use a, 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 a word, uh, a jargon, was, uh, was the, the daily encroachment of ordinary people over the space mm -hmm. of the camp. All right, so let's go, go back to the beginning. So how did you manage to meet refugees? And if you can even generalize, what were they like? That is a very good question. So how, do I, how did I meet them? Well, it was every time, as I told you um, during our previous um, episode, every time I do a research, it's always traumatic to me because I always ask myself, why am I doing this? I mean, why, 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 why want I go in some unknown place and trying to become, to get, to, to befriend people that don't know me, that suspect me of being a, anyway, I'm a professional, anthropologists are professional intruders. And they are professional intruders, professional intruders. Oh, but there, the I mean, word is intruders. You said intruders. Yes, intruders. Right. <laughs> and they are. I mean, to use. I mean, uh, another another words. We are a huge pain in the ass, if you want. So for the people <laughs> that they host us. So uh, and I mean, I did, I did this research during my PhD. So I was even much more inexperienced than I am now. Even though things have not really changed, I'm still. I'm still. I'm still struggle. I'm still. I mean, 
actually don't know how to reach people. So what I do was I ask around. I spend a few, a few weeks asking around. So how, how can I to people to much more experienced researchers than me? Uh-huh. So how do I do? How do I how do, how do I go to the camp? Also because the camp, like many other refugee Palestinian refugee camps, enjoyed a reputation which turned out to be mostly fake of being a very dangerous place. Uh-huh. So I say, how do I go to the camp? How do I become friends with these people? I mean, how they they they. What happened to me if I go there? I mean, they, they will kidnap me. They will, I don't know, uh, rob me. So eventually it was much easier than I thought. I was suggest to go in a youth club, which was, um, yeah, it's called Nadia Wahdat. Basically, this youth club, youth club was also the place where the, the, the very famous, the popular football team, Tariq Al-Wahdat, was established. Why say popular? Because it's one of the, it's the one of, if not the most, the strongest team in Jordan. So I went there and I started hanging out with the people. I, I, I did some volunteering and eventually, thanks to my broken Arabic, I became friends of people because, I mean, they were making fun of me trying to speak Arabic in, in the most awful possible ways. It's like me in uh, Italy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> maybe. It makes <laughs> <laughs> so you know i mean it works actually broken languages <laughs> work pretty well to, to different people mm-hmm. interestingly enough when i became to be more fluent in arabic i was there were a few people that thought i was a spy mm-hmm. uh, so I, so there must be some i mean out of jokes i mean uh, there must be some 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 truth in saying that when you speak very broken very broken language then you do not pose yourself as a threat for people mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so when I met them, how they were, well, it's hard to set them apart from other people. Mm. At first sight, they may across, they came, they may come across as poor people. Or traditionally, uh, Palestinian refugee camps, they were, they are considered to be place for people, and this is true for many camps in Jordan. Because that is not the only refugee camp in Jordan. There are, I mean, there are ten official recognized from the UN mm-hmm. camps in Jordan, and uh, ten, yeah, I think it's ten. Uh, the number. Uh, some of them is very poor. Mm, well, that is kind of an exception, but still, there, there still live a lot of poor people. Mm-hmm. However, n- there are also many people that have made money because the camp, as I said, has become a thriving economic center. So people have, uh, who have had the opportunity to turn their shelters into business activities, they have made money, mo- many of them. And then, I mean, there are not only Palestinian refugees, there are Plenty of people. Not, I'm not talking just of those people living in in, in the camp, like Egyptian Iraqi migrants, but now Syrian Syrian refugees, but also people who come to Wahdat simply to make shopping. So it's right. so, to- so, uh, so so what other groups did you meet in Jordan for the project? So you met refugees. Who else did you meet, and what were they like? Well, I, yeah, I met people from um, you know people. The refugees living, the refugees living living in the in the camps. They are called camp dwellers, and they are called Muhayamji, which literally means camp, camp dweller, but it's a, it's a word that, that with a very peculiar connotation, which is uh, which um, encompasses a mix of pride, like people from the, the Muhayamji are tough people, streetwise, but also people that are you know not very how you say not very recommendable, not very trustworthy. They they can be dangerous. That, that's, so that's, the, that's the connotation of the word. Yeah, exactly. So it's a very, it's, it's got a mixed meaning. Mm-hmm. So I, I did research with the Muhayamji, the so-called Muhayamji, but I did research also with other people, Palestinian refugees living outside the camp. So they were not considered to be Muhayamji. You talk to regular Jordanians? Kind of. I mean, you know that most of people, most of the very large majority of Palestinian refugees in Jordan, they actually enjoy full citizenship, right? Mm-hmm. Even the 
the so-called Mukhayamji, even the Kamuelis. Mm -hmm. So they are uh, any effect in Jordanians. However, in Jordan, there is um, ethnic, there is there are quite quite a lot of ethnic tensions between Jordanians, Jordanians, so-called pure Jordanians. I say so-called because we can go and on and on to discuss yeah. how these, these categories has been created, and the Jordanians of Palestinian origins, Jordanian of Palestinian origins living in the camp, and then other ethnic groups, Circassians, and so on and so forth. And you also talked to uh, UN workers, and uh, what about Jordanian police? Did you talk to any Jordanian police? Yeah, I talked with Jordanian police. I actually, the, the, these were the last people I interviewed because I feared they could have kicked me out of the camp. Because as a matter of fact, well, now I'm saying that because I, I'm done with this research, so they can, cannot do anything. But, I mean, I, <laughs> no, ideally, I mean, if by the book, if you do research in a, in a refugee camp, you need, um, you need uh, the permission of the authorities. I ask and obtain the permission from the authorities, but I, I should... Uh, every time notified my presence to the authorities. And if you do that, you get accompanied ah. uh, by, by police officers. This doesn't exactly facilitate your research, especially if you want to do, I mean, an in-depth ethnographic research. So I left interviews with authorities at the very end of my research. It was fun. It was interesting because, I mean, you know, at the entrance of the camp, even though you may not distinguish the, the camp, mm -hmm. if you get familiar with the camp, there are a few, few, uh, few features that allow you to, the, to set the camp apart from the rest of the city. But if, if you now, Brian, if you go to, to Baghdad, you cannot say when the camp starts and where, where the camp ends. But at the entrance of the camp, the, when I'm saying at the entrance is the, um, right at the entrance of the um, administrative border of the camp, which is invisible, there is a big police station, which looks like a fortress. I did interview the head of the police station. It was interesting because the, 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 the opinion that was holding of refugees, Palestinian refugees, was pretty much echo the opinions of almost everybody else outside refugee camps in Jordan, which was Mukhayamji can be good, can be bad. <laughs> but in any case, the camp is a place for tough people, streetwise, and very dangerous. You don't want to go in a refugee camp. You don't want to go in like that. Now, when I did that, this actually, that's why I was quite scared at the beginning to go to do research in Wahdat. I, I, I didn't know, I mean, how the risk I was facing. Eventually, what I found out was absolutely safe and was not much much more dangerous than any other place. I... Uh, so in your work, you describe most Palestinian refugees as politically disengaged and apathetic. And you seem quite surprised by that. I would say I was not surprised because that's the way I think people are. So my question is this. So couldn't you say the same about most Italians or most Americans? Would you say that Palestinian refugees are even more politically disengaged and apathetic than we are? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, this is a good question. I would say to a certain extent, there may be a great deal of truth in what in this comparison. I although I mean I cannot I cannot tell you for sure. I mean I can I do not know whether the causes for this engagement and ap apathy uh, among Italians and Americans or any other nationality may be the same of Palestinian Palestinians in Jordan. I mean the, the apathy and disengagement at the time of my research among my research informants, Palestinian refugees in camps didn't spring out of a disinterest for Palestine and Palestinian nationalism. On the contrary, my research participants were always manifested a clear sense of nationalist belonging. I mean, the point is that this sense of nationalism, even of political political allegiance with Palestine to Palestine, was less ideological and far more affected. Palestine and the symbols associated to Palestine were very much important to them. Mm -hmm. So, rather, the causes of this engagement, this interest or apathy for politics, can be 
explained with the complex political dynamics in Jordan at the time of my research, and I, I suppose even now. So this engagement from politics represented among my research participants an attempt to limit control, if you want to hold back the, what they were perceiving, my, my research informants, the upsetting dynamics of the friend-enemy uh, dichotomy in Jordan. In other words, to make it these a bit simpler, I mean easier, in Jordan, especially if you are a Palestinian, especially if you're a Palestinian from a refugee camp, either you are a Palestinian or you're a Jordanian. But if you are Jordanian, you have to deny your Palestinian origin, your, your Palestinian allegiance. You have to, um, how do you say, to give away that you do not, you have to be fully Jordanian. I actually, you, you cannot be also Palestinian. Well, let me put it this way. So, so, so when I was traveling around Italy, I was amazed at how many statues of Garibaldi they are. There are like everywhere I went, he's, he really is bigger than Jesus. But when I actually talked to Italians, I talked to my students, some of them seemed confused about who he even was. And then I talked to some other people said, well, it's the central government in Rome that ordered and provided the money to put a statue of Garibaldi every single where you look. And most people couldn't care less about him. And I'm like, all right, so is Palestine like that, where on the surface, there's a lot of symbols of Palestinian nationalism. But when you actually talk to people, they're much more concerned about getting a good job or it's just like we're the soccer game. It's, I mean, both is true. I mean, they do care about Palestine, very much so. I mean, if you speak, if you, if you stay with Palestinians, they, they, they mean Palestine, it's, um, it, it's, it's really the epicenter of their um, affective, well, of their values and uh, affection. They, they really care about Palestine and about Palestinian values, about the symbols uh, and the symbolism surrounding, revolving around Palestine. So um, the olive trees, the bread from Palestine, uh, so on and so forth. The, 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 everything coming from Palestine is best, is best, is better. And, and but they don't want to know about politics. And the reason why is because if you engage in politics, you have to, you are forced in Jordan, you are forced to take a stance. Either you deny your Palestinian Palestinianness, mm -hmm. or you deny your Jordanianness. Because if you are a Palestinian from a refugee camp, by default, you are believed to be a revolutionary, someone against the, the, the central state, against the Jordanian state. Because after Black September in the, in the 70s, basically the Jordanian, the, the construction of a national identity in Jordan has been predicated upon the expulsion or the purification, if you want, of any Palestinian element. So if you want to be, if you want to integrate in Jordan, you cannot show overtly your belonging to, to Palestine. And to Palestinian values. On the other hand, among, and for, for my, my research participants, Palestine was really important, but they, all, they also felt Jordanians. Because you may say, yes, they just pretend to be Jordanians, but in truth, they are only, only Palestinian. So they disengage by politics, but they actually care about politics. No, they really didn't care about politics because they also felt to be Jordanians, because they, they enjoy full citizenship rights. So in other words, they, they Think about Brian. It's like you you feel you want to be both American and both Italian in a context where you cannot be uh, you cannot be both. You you have to choose either. But they don't want to renounce this this possibility of being both because both are very important. And so right. what so, they so, do? Uh, or, so yeah, we should probably move on. But uh, so uh, so one goal of this research, uh, in your words, is quote to challenge popular stereotypes about Palestinian refugees in Jordan today. End quote. So what exactly are these stereotypes and are they really wrong? Could you just as well have replaced the word challenge when you say challenge popular stereotypes with refine? Now, this is a very, a very evil question. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I, 
I suppose when we replace when we replay with challenge stereotypes, we facilitate the introduction of new stereotypes, especially mm -hmm. when what our challenges get some authoritarian value, which I don't think is will be the case of my answer by my 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 explanations. But anyway, that the type so, of so what are the stereotypes and are they really yeah. well? The type of stereotypes the Palestinians had they enjoy well enjoy they, they were afflicted if you want in Jordan they, is the idea that Palestinian Palestinian uh, especially Palestinian camps are bastions of political resistance and activism and Palestinians are homopoliticus by definition a Palestinian the Palestinian bread and butter is politics and uh, revolution and this and there is some truth in that because I mean. Uh, Palestinians have enjoyed the they've enjoyed the reputation and enjoyed an history of uh, political activism. In the in the seventies, the, the Palestinian refugee camp like Wahdat was renamed, became the headquarters of the Fedayeen, and was renamed the Republic. Just to give you an idea, Jordan is a kingdom. So if you call the Wahdat Republic, you do it in open defiance to the Jordanian monarchy. Did, did anyone that you talked to, as far as you know, go and join ISIS and fight? Mm, no, actually, at the time of my research, which was the beginning of ISIS, uh, when ISIS began to become popular, uh, most of my, I think all of them, no, I met someone who was, yes, was was said, was rumored to have joined ISIS in, um, his name was, uh, was uh, in, uh, sorry, in Iraq. Um, he, uh, funny enough, he was, he got this nickname, was uh, Cartridge, cartridge, bullet. Anyway, bullet was his surname, and he was it was kind of crazy this guy because it was it was rumored to be eventually arrested by the secret the, the Muhabarat, the Jordanian secret notorious secret service, and then tortured and then eventually relinquished any any of his allegiance to to ISIS. Um, but most all of my research participants actually were pretty much against uh, ISIS, but they actually had a different idea of Al Qaeda. And Osama bin Laden. They saw many, even though none of them was interested in uh, in participating in um, in any form of political uh, activism, uh, especially any form of jihad or whatever this means. In the camp at the time of my research, uh, Osama bin Laden was was seen was perceived by many as a as a sort of fighter for freedom. And there were there were a comparison between interesting comparison between uh, Osama bin Laden and uh, Che Guevara. Many were comparing him to Che Guevara. And you said his picture was up, right? Uh, bin Laden's picture was up. You could see his picture yeah. on walls. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also in, in t-shirts. But no, not, not very. Yeah, not no, very bin common. Laden t-shirts. Never... <laughs> yeah, but not very common anyway, because um, Will uh, Jordanian police uh, be? Yes, was not that? exactly sympathetic with uh, with us. So it was just so it was. All right. So on stereotypes. So my stereotype was that it would would be hard for you to interview Palestinian women, but I'm still surprised by how strict the gender segregation that you describe was. You were talking about how if you went into a house, the women had to move to another room. Basically, you almost never interviewed a woman in the whole book, right? Because they mm -hmm. wouldn't let you. <laughs> I mean, correct. So, so here's my question. Do anthropologists ever conclude that popular stereotypes are accurate or understated, right? Are anthropologists biased against stereotypes? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, stereotypes are crucial for anthropologists. Oh, by the way, Brian, anthropologists, I think if you know, if you don't know already, 
I mean, are the most biased people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please. All right. Tell us more. How? <laughs> well, I mean, we often there's, indulge there's the, the use of stereotypes during our informal chats. And the excuse that we are, I mean, uh, we are the, 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 uh, the champions of, moral, of relativism, cultural relativism. We end up being, being I mean, using stereotypes quite easily. But, I mean, apart from that, uh, um, I believe the stereotypes doesn't say... Mm, that is a good question. Uh, I mean, the, the problem about the stereotypes with Palestinian and gender segregation is that the stereotypes doesn't say this stereotype, the common stereotype circulating is about about women, well, Muslim women, is that doesn't say much. Um, the stereotypes do not lay, this, sorry, this, let me reformulate. The, the stereotypes the, do not so much lie in patterns of gender segregation, um, but more in the moral and social dispositions associated with gender roles. So in other words, what I mean with that? I mean that there is a widespread idea that because women are separated, uh, well, the separation of women is a clear evidence of the fact that women are passive victims of abusive patriarchal authority, and they have no or very little agency and say in, uh, in everything concerning um, society and uh, social relationship in the camp. Now, without any doubt, gender segregation was, and supposedly still is, partly actively enforced in the camp. Men on one side, the women on the other, unless men and women are not related through kinship ties or very, or very strong friendship relations. Let's say women <coughs> are separated as much as men. So if certain spaces are precluded to women, others are precluded to men. But most importantly, gender, gender segregation do not point to women twins lack of agency or absolute subordination. I met very strong women who were very clearly in favor of gender segregation. They were among the most vocal advocates of gender segregation. These very women were actually the head of the households and they were those with, the, in Italy you would say, with the pants. In the, in now, the so I have a big interest in the topic of poverty. So that was a lot of what got me really engaged with your work. Uh, so Palestinian refugees, they seem poor even by Jordanian standards. Of course, Jordan, you know, Jordan would be much poorer than Italy or the U.S. Now, let's just think about some of the causes. All right. So in the West, one of the top causes of poverty is non-marital childbearing. Uh, mm -hmm. Despite refugee poverty, this doesn't seem to be a problem in the camps, right? Uh, well, I'm not sure that. Actually, I would like to ask you why you, you get this opinion from what I've written. Because it's, to be honest, I'm not really sure about that. There is a lot of stigma associated with non-marital Right, right, but it seems, it seems like the stigma is so high that it hardly ever happens. Is that, you know, so I don't ah, remember. Ah, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so. so, so basic, basically every, uh, every child is born to two married parents or almost, you know, almost every single one. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. That, it so can happen, not, of course. Yeah. It can happen. I met I met a few cases where there was a non-marital non-marital childbearing, but these are really much, very much exceptions, precisely because the so, the strong social pressure, the stigma sure. associated with with this phenomenon. Just yeah. to give you an idea, it's not a case, for example, that children without a father, in in, in uh, are called orphans and they receive spe special assistance. Mm -hmm. All right. So now in the West, another top cause of poverty is not failure to find jobs, but failure to keep jobs. This comes up a lot in ethnography, right? So now I was very struck then, one of the refugees you interviewed uh, told you that his friend, quote, can't do the same job for more than a couple of weeks because he is too lazy. Also, he always argues with employers, end quote. 
And then you also tell another story about two young male refugees who get jobs at Kentucky Fried Chicken outside the camp. Uh, but then they beat up a couple of coworkers. Um, now, what words we want to use for this varies from discipline. You could call it just machismo or hegemonic masculinity or just impulse control, more what psychologists would say. So whatever words you prefer, would you say that this failure to keep jobs is a major cause of poverty in the camps? Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is, yes, this is according to my informants. This was one of the, um, the explanations of why, why, we, why people couldn't take their jobs. And actually is precisely because they could not take it at, at, at bay their, their manliness, their Palestinian manliness. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, manly, and, the Palestinian manliness gets in the way. Yeah, exactly. So uh, this is according to my informants. I mean, this is um, many of my, many, what I noticed that because I did research, especially with young men, and um, and they were squeezed between um, some sort of ideal of male assertiveness, which is the Muhayamji um, ideal. If you want, you are tough, streetwise. And on the other hand, they also the need of coping, of coping by, of trying to, to secure a job. Now, for some of these people, was actually attention. There are there, there is there are authors that have been writing about that. This is not my idea, but uh, what I found out that for many of my friends, this tension was actually settled, and they found a new form of masculinity, a hegemonic masculinity, in uh, basically managing different ideas of masculinity and knowing when is the right time to use one idea of masculinity and when is another one. So they were basically strategically engaging with masculinity. Is masculinity still hegemonic if it's strategic? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's not a traditional hegemonic understanding of masculinity. That's for sure. Yeah, it's a new, it's a new hegemonic understanding of masculinity. Let's say based on the capacity of managing, uh, if you want, antithetical understanding of masculinity. All right. Here's another quote from the book. Quote. Migrating to Kuwait and the Emirates is nevertheless one of the few viable means left for camp dwellers to substantially improve their economic standing and an important source of income for those of their relatives who remain in the camp, end quote. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, um, there, is a long, there is a long tradition of Palestinians uh, living for, um, for the Gulf, especially to the Kuwait and Emirates. Uh, especially in the 70s and the 80s, the Urwa school, Urwa, by the way, is the UN body in charge of um, taking care of the Palestinian uh, refugees. The Urwa schools were providing a very, now it's not anymore the case, but they used to provide a very good uh, education um, to Palestinians. This allowed them to find employ, uh, an employment in the richer, in the richest, in the rich markets of the Kuwait and Emirates. Mm -hmm. And what they did, this was a very good way for them to get money and send and send remittances back to their families in the camp, and and then come back, retire, retire, and build a, a, a big house at the outskirts of the camp or somewhere else, and um, just as um, and settle down. And this is what they did. Now, there has been three, well, we can say four now, but before the, the, the Syrian refugee crisis, there have been three major exodus of Palestinians. One, the third one was in the 80s, basically when many Palestinians in the Kuwait were kicked out of Kuwait because um, basically, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, Arafat was siding, uh, was taking the stance of... Uh, that, that would be like 1990, right? Exactly. The next, sorry, the not, quite, not quite the 80s, but yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, no, so my mistake, yes, in the 1990s, because uh, uh, Arafat was taking a stance, was basically supporting the invasion of, of Kuwait um, by Saddam Hussein. As a retaliation of these, many were many Palestinians residing in Kuwait were eventually kicked out. Mm-hmm. And this give you, just to give you an idea of the exodus uh, of, uh, on the number of Palestinians that were actually relying on jobs in the Kuwait and Emirates at that time, because it became an exodus, uh, those who were kicked out and were called the returnees. They were kicked out and then eventually found Move back. Many of them moved back to Jordan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now stepping back, last interview we talked a bit about neoliberalism, this great <laughs> enemy that that comes up in so much of academia. All right. So neoliberal is normally a term of abuse. There are there are almost no actual self-described neoliberals saying, "Hi, I'm a neoliberal." <laughs> right. So it's normally a term of abuse, and especially in academia. Right. But when I actually read you, it seemed like you made it sound pretty good. So here's another quote from the book, quote, the neoliberal turn in Jordan has thus had profound imaginative implications on local understandings of affluence and well-being. This is perhaps best exemplified by the emergence of specific patterns of consumption among camp dwellers, mass produced and mass mediated consumer goods such as television sets, satellite dishes and computers, have become a main aim of people's aspirations, end quote. Uh, did you intend to make neoliberalism sound good? Oof. Uh, Brian, I mean, I, I think after these two episodes, I mean, I'm seriously starting to question myself and I need a probably psychologist because, oh my God, I became a neoliberal. I mean, I, I, I mean, neoliberal. like my story is you're just really <laughs> empirical, Luigi. So if you, you write, like, like you write about what you see and then whether it fits yeah, yeah. some theory or not, who cares? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, 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 I'm joking. I mean, it's, um, well, in this specific case, I'm not trying to give, uh, I mean, neither a positive or negative, nor a negative connotation to neoliberalism. It's more like, exactly as you put it, it's more like, like, what I found out is that the neoliberal turn in Jordan has had profound, I mean, very deep implications on the way Palestinian refugees live their lives. Not only Palestinian refugees, but also them. Now, my goal was to problematize the argument that the rise of neo, the, the so-called neoliberal tide has merged let's say, alternative values and moral codes. Um, you know, what happens in refugees value well-being not only on the basis of their income or other neoliberal, so-called neoliberal values, but also in the terms of the ethical and political qualities often entailed in being poor. So it would actually clash with certain with a certain understanding of prosperity. For many people, being, being rich, being um, well-off, also implies some sort of, at least in principle, some sort of being poor because, um, and this is was actually clashing because both values, the neoliberal values and let's call the traditional values were, uh, were coexisting and clashing one another often in the life of my people, of my, my research participants. So on the one hand, you have had an ideal of success and wanted that the rise of neoliberal ideal, uh, neoliberalism, if you want, has boost even further. So the idea that money make happiness, the moral standards, and even moral standards also affected by wealth in a more positive way. So you're more respectable people if you get money. On the other, you have also a conflict in understanding where poverty is the source of dignity and moral stance. Now, in this, in the, in this specific understanding, poverty, political subjectivity, and morality were strictly interconnected. So um, I, I, I remember very well a friend talking of, of girls from uh, the rich areas of Amman, West, uh, West Amman in particular, and they were talking about these girls as being, I mean, in more, 
and not like the girls from the camp that they are much more moral because they are much more close to what was life in Palestine before at the time of our grandfathers. This was the idea of, um, of morality, you know? And again, what was, what was uh, again, the link, see how obvious is the link with Palestine. And, um, and they were trying to accommodate, and my research participants struggled quite a bit to accommodate these different ideals. So again, it was not easy to them because they were subscribing to both ideals and always managed to, 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 to accommodate these, these conflicting ideals. All right, so, so here's my reading of your work and you can tell me what you think. All right, so we got some refugees focus on short-term gratification. So you got drinking, acting tough, petty crime, and then others focus on what are really just fantasies of nationalist or religious violence. But most refugees, on my reading of you, focus on bourgeois success, so getting a good job and providing a comfortable life for their families. Uh, now, when I think of these three choices, well, short-term gratification, uh, violent fantasies, or bourgeois success, so, you know, to me, it's obvious that the third path is vastly better for the individual, for Palestinians in general, and for the world. Uh, is this obvious to you, too, or am I just reading my own values into your work? Uh, no, actually, well, I would say that my life choices, well, and of course, my possibilities of being a scholar with all, all Intel says a great deal of what you mean, or what you say. I mean, um, what is what is what interests me is why for some people there is not a clear straightforward answer what is best for them. Mm -hmm. So, oh, but actions speak people, louder than words. Most of the Palestinians you saw seem like bourgeois success is their top priority, and the other stuff yeah. is yeah. all right. Well, one day, one day I'll go and liberate Palestine, but for now, I'm gonna get my kebab business going yeah yeah no this is true and i wonder to what extent i'm not reflecting i'm not projecting on my research participants what what i am or what i wish to be or what i do not wish to be anyway because as a matter of fact i mean many times anthropologists ended up doing research and uh ended up coming up with theories that are strongly connected with their own personal experience mm -hmm. uh and life so yes, it's um you know it's a very good question. Um, it could there, there be some truth in that, yeah. Hmm. So do you think that just focusing on bourgeois success is the best thing for the individuals, for the Palestinians in general, in the world? No, I don't forget think this so. other stuff. No, no, I don't think so. So so, so, honest, so, I, so, I mean, so like the you know the short term gratification seems like it's a dead end. Right, you wouldn't go and tell a young man, "I think that you should focus on drinking, <laughs> acting tough, and petty crime." Yeah, uh, you wouldn't. I assume you would not go and say you need to go and become a violent activist. <laughs> so then, so really, there's the other the bourgeois success is by process of elimination. It's the last thing left. Like what else yeah, is what, what? What else do you, like? It seems like those three things are pretty much everything you saw. If you frame if you frame it like that, yes, I think he, I think I wouldn't say what else is there left. Which makes me actually a bit sad. Um, yeah. What do yeah, you I think? Guess, I guess like the the other lifestyle that you talked about is sort of the quietistic religious life. So you did talk just about some people who are, you know, like they don't try for bourgeois success. They just read the Quran and try to observe the rules and be a model. Like so, I guess that's one other thing. Uh, you could do that. Uh, you know. If it were your son in the camps, would you say do that, or would you say get a job and succeed? Yeah, 
Well, I mean, in the, in the specific case of Jordanian Jordanians in Palestinian in the, in the refugee camps in Jordan, I think what was very important for them was, and for everybody actually, is living a meaningful life. And uh, in that specific case, accommodating, um, being a, living a bourgeois, bourgeoisie, bourgeois life, was the only way of accommodating and uh, different values and often conflicting values, and therefore living a meaningful life. Mm-hmm. Now. I'm not sure whether there were other ways of uh, living a life, accommodating these values, which doesn't imply living, um, doesn't involve living a bourgeoisie life. But yeah, what I was, what I would say for my research participants, what and what I would say for myself, probably is living a, a meaningful life is the best way of living a life. Hmm, but I don't know. I have to think about that. All right. Um, moving on to one of my big interests in assimilation. So Westerners usually fear that Muslim immigrants will fail to assimilate, and they usually get singled out. Muslims are the ones who won't assimilate. Uh, but the refugees you interviewed seem more afraid that their children would assimilate if they moved to the West. So here's a quote from your book, quote, squeeze between the need to make money and the uneasiness of bringing up his daughter abroad for an indefinite period of time, this man in his late 20s was overwhelmed by a dilemma. If I stay at home without a proper job, my wife will leave me. But if I go abroad with the whole family for years, who knows how my daughter will grow up in a different place? You know, in Europe, it is normal for girls to go out with men before marriage. I don't want my daughter doing this. I would move to a better place in Amman, but if I travel to Europe with my daughter, she will end up behaving like Western girls." End quote. So who is more right about the likely extent of assimilation if refugees did go to Europe, Westerners or migrants? Mm, well, that's hard to say. Mm. <laughs> I don't have an answer. I think it so is, that, is that dad paranoid and his daughter would be would, would probably stay with it? Or is he right? To me, well, it's, it's not right. To... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to say. It depends very much. I mean, I think he's... Um, well, I mean, as a father with certain values, I mean, I'm talking about him, not myself. Uh, I don't share his, his same values, but sure, sure. if I were him... But, but the forecast, the forecast, is he right? Yeah, if I were him, I would be concerned as well. Yeah, Definitely the likelihoods of changing would be probably to be exposed to different social, cultural environments. Uh, on the other hand, this is there is no, I mean, any any determinism in that because I mean, uh, as we see, for example, the second generations of migrants have become much more involved into religion, into religion than their fathers and the first generations of migrants. So, uh, and then you you would expect that this would 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 not happen among migrants that are exposed and second generation that are much that are exposed much more than their fathers and mothers, uh, their parents, to, um, to liberal and uh, supposedly secular uh, cultures and societies. But is it really true that second-generation migrants are more into Islam than their parents? I have a student who at least looked at data for the United Yeah, well, this is what studies say. I mean, okay. Yeah. Say, say again? Oh, so, so yeah, could you elaborate? Well, I mean, this is what studies say, that it's uh, second generations, at least in Italy, and uh, but also somewhere, I think, in Germany as well, and uh, France as well, in Europe. Second generations of migrants have shown much more, second and third generations, much more alliance, allegiance to um, so-called Islamic values and uh, than their fathers and their parents, sorry. 
mean, even um, on something like intermarriage with non-Muslims, like to me, it would be shocking if first-generation Muslims were more Muslim immigrants were more likely to intermarry than their kids. No, I mean, definitely there are people that they have not. I mean, this is not um, a universal trend. I mean, for the for the, the specific singular individual. But this is a general trend that involves um, most of migrants. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I, 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 the comparison can be made with their parents. Mm-hmm. And yes, they may be more. They they are considered to be much more uh, religious, um, much more into Islam for 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 Muslims. I'm talking than um, than, than than their parents. But this has this is this is for a for for a um, I mean for a multiplicity of causes it's not just due to the as i mean it's also it's linked also to geopolitical changes and um and it's not to do necessarily it's nothing to do necessarily with them um, but also with the integration with the process with the integration uh policies implemented in the singular in the in the specific uh states so it's an it's a it's a number of it's um as this this um let's say uh enhanced uh, religiosity among second generations is explained by by different factors. Is not always the case, but this is what has been remarked in most of the cases. All right. Now, suppose Palestinians do assimilate to Western values. It seems like they'll be even more focused on bourgeois success than they already are. Right now, it's true. There's always going to be some, especially young men, who focus on short-term gratification, but. If you get really into bourgeois success, then these fantasies of nationalist and religious violence are going to disappear. Um, this seems like a huge improvement to me because you know, the violent fantasies aren't just personally futile. Uh, they really hurt the global reputation of all Palestinians. You're talking about Arafat messing things up for Palestinians working in Kuwait. Um, but then stepping back, this seems like a very liberal, a very neoliberal view of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, you know, just saying, yeah, it'd be great. Like all of this violent fantasies disappears. People just focus on jobs and getting iPhones, big improvement. So do you disagree or is this not really just a distinctively neoliberal view? And it's what a lot of reasonable people think should happen. Yeah, good question. Well, I don't think that neoliberals, I mean, neoliberal ideals, whatever, or trends submerge previous alternatives ideals. So, I mean, if you think about that, at times you can, neoliberalism you can interact quite dangerously with other ideals. Think about the United States, I mean, which is widely believed to be the source and the epicenter of neoliberal values. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I cannot say it's free of fantasies of nationalism and religious violence, mm-hmm. right? Well, so it's sure, not, not free, but there's a, there's a competition. If you are focused on making money, you're not focused on joining a militia. Does it? I'm not sure. I mean, there is. There are many. I mean, people that are very much into. I would say these preachers are very much into. Well, I mean, many preachers actually have shown, like, for example, I mean, depending on the type of religion, can be Christians, uh, born again, can be Muslims, whatever. But they actually made quite a, an economic success out of their um, religious and political belief. You know, it is easier well, I mean, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, so they say. Like even you know, even you know, American churches that you would think of as being very conservative, they mm-hmm. still have a lot of complaining. You guys are bad because you're focused on your iPhones and making money and cars, so you should be focusing on the Bible. Yeah, and then they make a lot of money, right? 
so it's quite a contradiction right it's part and parcel of um, it's it's another example of how uh I mean, neoliberalism values i mean uh, coexist and conflict with other values and sometimes it gets uh, people may not are successfully successfully accommodate these different values sometimes they actually fail um yeah all right, now here is a thought experiment. I know a lot of professors don't like to think about hypotheticals, but I know you're the better kind that will. <laughs> All right, so imagine the US gave a green card to any Palestinian refugee in the camp in Jordan that you talked to. So anyone who wants to go to the US gets a green card, they're free to move to the US, free to get a job. So over the next 10 years, what fraction do you think would leave? Mm, well, this is, Brian, this, I do not have an answer to this question. I wouldn't know because you see, I mean, there is this, this again, is connected with uh, the, the, the previous episode when I, we talk about uh, human smuggling and irregular mm -hmm. migration. There is, we, we didn't really quite cover that. So this may provide actually a good, um, a good link with what we discussed before uh, between the two episodes. Uh, I mean, there is this, there is a widespread belief, especially among policy leaders and generally, I mean, uh, public in public opinion, that if you open borders, then you will be invaded, mm -hmm. right? By thousands, by thousands, by millions of migrants mm -hmm. wishing to well, to take on to, to to occupy the lands of free and well, the the, the, the best. The, 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 well, well so the, there's there's invade in the sense that millions would come, and there's invade in the sense that it would be violent or bad. Right. And people, yeah, of, course, it, it, people well, of course, want to equivocate and act like those are the same. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think it's almost certain that tens of millions would come in a short amount of time. I don't think I think they would be great, but I think the numbers are there and we've got a lot of evidence saying that those numbers would be very high. Uh, yeah. Do, do we? I mean, I don't know, because, I mean, many people, they say, I mean, there are recent researches. I was I was reading a re research of um, by. Uh, I think was um, in the uh, in the house who is a, a researcher, um, a very famous researcher on migration, and was actually questioning the idea um, that uh, opening borders would lead necessarily to an invasion. I mean, whatever again with, whatever. A, with a large number. I mean, like like you know how much money refugees are paying to get smuggled in. Imagine if that price, which is a lot of money for them, were to fall to the price of a bus ticket or a cheap boat ticket. Yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, you know, I've got a piece where I go over the very strongest evidence that I know of, which is the United States diversity lottery. So here we mm -hmm. actually do run a lottery where you randomly are admitted or not admitted. And what we can see is that there's you know, the, you know, uh, so I, if I remember, like a very simple estimate would be that about 20 million people want to come right away just based on that, just based oh, really? on the so many. Yeah. I mean, okay. of course, no, that's, you know, and, and then you have to remember all the people that don't bother to apply to the lottery because it's so discouraging because their odds of winning are so low. Hmm. So yeah, I think that there, there really are just so many. It's, uh, no, well, definitely, we, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there would be many, many, I mean, more people than actually, they're actually coming, but eventually it would be, I mean, it would be interesting to see how much more of them will actually come. I mean, what, what I, mean, I also remember once a lot, once a lot of your friends and relatives go, then a lot of the reason to stay goes away and you say, well, now, since half my family is in America already, it, I, I, I can, I can be closer to them if I leave, instead of saying right now, it's a very tragic choice where you have to leave your family when you get permission. 
And imagine mm. a world where you could all just go and get a bus ticket or you know, a boat ticket and go. Yes, that's true. But there would be also much more circular migration. I mean, let's not forget. Oh, yeah, no, no, that, that's absolutely true, too. A lot of circular migration. Mm. So let's not forget that many migrants, actually, they, for example, those mm. who I met, but again, these are a minority, so I cannot really generalize out of my sample. But mm. those who I met, many of those who I met, actually, they don't want to go to, my, to, to mm. Europe. Many of them, many yes, many no. And uh, actually, one of the one of the refugees I met is in the camp, and I I, I, I recount this story in the, in the book. Basically, he actually won. So, so this is what he told me. And he, he won the, the green um, the green lottery, the green um, whatever it is. Um, but he didn't go eventually because he was he was scared. Mm-hmm. Then he kept. Then it was. It was great to see. But he was scared about uh, about the illegal transit, or he was scared to be in Europe. No, it was scared to be in the states. Ah, it was or scared, sorry, sorry, scared to be in the states. Yeah, it was scared to be in the states, and then then it became his greatest re- regret. Point mm-hmm. is that when you open the the borders, yes, much 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 more people will be coming, but many more that can, they can come. Mm-hmm. They actually they they can come. They may not come simply because they. Mm-hmm. Because they don't need it and they can do it whenever they want, so they don't have this urge anymore. So something is saying that you would like to go. Something else is actually going to another place. When I many some of not, not again they represent a minority, but still a sizable minority of Syrian refugees fleeing the war, they actually try to go back to Syria despite mm-hmm. the war going on and on because they didn't want to stay in Jordan. Mm-hmm. So it depends very much on the condition, the reception, or where they go. The time. I mean, definitely there will be much more mobility, but I don't know whether the, the numbers will, will be of migrants will be considerably higher, for sure will be higher, but I don't know how much higher will be. All right. All right, now let's step back a bit. Actually, let me start with an apology. I'm an economist, and I know <laughs> economists don't treat people in other disciplines very well. I know that economists generally have a bad attitude about other disciplines. <laughs> I don't. I love meeting people in other social sciences, and I just want to get other people to appreciate you as I do. So tell us, so what do anthropologists know that other social scientists don't? Top, in, top insights. Um, okay, that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, well, I suppose that it's the, the, the greatest added value of anthropology is to get an inside view um, into phenomenon that are hard to reach in many cases, mm-hmm. or uh, they do not lend themselves easily to, to, um, to be unpacked. So um, it's this, um, it, I think anthropology allows, you know what is, I think anthropology does best, is to unveil cracks in uh, grand theories. We do very, we, we do, ve- we perform very badly when it comes to do, to, 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 to theorize, at least at, 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 at to come out with large theories, big, uh, all encompassing theories. We do very bad, but we are very good in, in finding cracks in this theory, in finding exceptions, and therefore in refining these grand theories. This doesn't mean that we need, once you find a crack, an exception, we don't, we, you don't, you're not too necessary to abandon the theory, but it's very good if you want to refine a theory, if you want to come up with a, a much a sharper tool. Yeah, I think this is what we do well. 
I mean, is that like you start off with a theory that all societies are patriarchal and then you find an island off of Papua New Guinea that's a matriarchy <laughs> or, 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 or what? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, uh, yes, this, this is the beginning. It wouldn't be enough, of course. Then you find out, for example, I mean, there is this theory that now is being replaced by much more sophisticated theory. Then just to get back to this idea of, of uh, to, the, to the idea of the, the phenomenon of neoliberalism, has been long believed that the neoliberalism is basically such a powerful force that is replacing any, any other ideas coming before, right? So it's coming and there is nothing else. Now society has become neoliberal and that's it. It's, it's done tabula rasa of everything coming before. Anthropologists have been very good in showing how there are also um, alternative ideas coexisting with neoliberalism. So what we do is not, we are not denying, we're not minimizing the powerful impact of neoliberalism. We are helping nuance the, 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 the impact of neoliberalism over, over different societies, on, this, on different societies. So how much that anthropologists know comes from actual empirics and how much is from anthropological theory? Well, it's, um, I, I mean, ideally, because then it's, um, as I said, I mean, after uh, the problem with that, the, the, I think the greatest issue, especially both methodologically and theoretically with anthropology, is that after the field work, after PhD, we do not, we seldom have enough time to carry out a proper ethnographic research. Mm-hmm. Because because we need to publish, we need to teach, we mm-hmm. need we have other commitments. We mm-hmm. have a family, so I cannot just say to my my my, my wife and my kids, "Hello, I go away and I go to Papua New Guinea for for a, for a year and a half." I mean, that's um, I'll see you in a year and a half. Uh, but this is the biggest the biggest problem. But ideally, in the best in, in the best world, I mean, um, what we do is, I mean. Um, we tend to do have a dialogue between theory and empiric and empiric and and, and, um, and data collection. So, so as a matter of fact, given the inductive nature of ethnographic research, often that analysis begins almost concomitantly with the fieldwork, right? And so, in this, because new observation leads to new linkages between the theoretical core concepts and the data, which in turn lead to revisions in the theory and more data collections. So, is this dynamic of um, this game of um, this back and forth that helps eventually building up a theory and um, coming up with theoretical with theorization in anthropology. All right, so let me make a confession, Luigi, and I hope you take it the right way. Uh, the <laughs> confession: I liked your book on Palestinian refugees a lot more than the articles. Right? Can you handle that? Yeah, yeah, yes. I agree with you. Yeah, so, so the, the book focuses closely on the empirics. I read it. I had there were a lot a lot of interviews with, with the people that, with 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 actual refugees with other people that you talked to. I learned a lot about what was really going on, and then I turned to the papers, and they've got the field work, but there's actually a lot more academic jargon, and what I'll call name dropping, where you just mention famous people, and I didn't I didn't think that the jargon and name dropping was very informative. So you had quite a bit on Carl Schmidt, and the his friend-enemy distinction. And when I read that, I'm like, well, duh, of course, <laughs> right? There's friends and enemies and politics involves that. And then there's someone else. Um, do you say his name Mufay or Muf? How do you say his name? Muf. Muf, right. Muf's talk about, quote, the ontological condition of being, end quote. I mean, I was a philosophy minor and I was like, all right, <laughs> this seems like obscurantism where you're using really big words to talk about very trivial things. Now, uh, you can be honest with me, Luigi. 
So was all this jargon and name dropping, was it a strategic decision to get published or am I just being a Philistine? No, no, I think you're right. I mean, <laughs> there are different reasons. No, 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 by any means you're right. I think I could have been, I could have been less, uh, been less dragonish. Okay, let me just give you mm, two explanations for that. Three, Once, one, one, one explanation is precisely is, is a strategic decision. If you publish for a peer review journal, you know, you have to be much more- Gotta talk about Carl Schmidt to get published. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's especially at that time, it was very fashionable, huh? right? So I just came up with something very fashionable, yeah. even though, I mean, it was actually applied very well to my, to my, to my mm -hmm. theory, to my um, an analysis. But still, I mean, it's true that it was the, the, the paper, the, the, the articles were fraught with jargon, mm -hmm. with unnecessarily, uh, unnecessary um, theoretical engage engagement with, um, with, the, with thick passages of, um, of philosophers. So in part is that it was a strategic decision, in part because I was a junior researcher and sometimes, and sometimes and somehow I feel the shield by using big names, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And in using jargon, this is a very common. If you do read, uh, I hope you will never do it uh, and you have never done it, but if you do read anthropology, uh, especially, um, well, um, I say, uh, papers by anthropologists in general, especially young anthropologists, but even older anthropologists, what you find out, especially especially junior uh, anthropologists, graduate students, what you find out is something in many cases, almost unintelligible. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't, uh, you, honestly, I struggle myself to navigate the jargon used by anthropologists, especially junior scholars. And I think this has part to do with the fact that we feel shielded by using- and They're, they're um, hiding behind fancy words when they don't- Exactly, exactly. I always wondered, then a, a third explanation um, may have to do with the discipline itself, but I'm not sure this, I'm just, I mean, just, uh, I'm just hazarding an explanation, may, may, may have to do with the fact that anthropology is often being under accused, I mean, accused of not being a real discipline, right? Mm -hmm. You speak with people, you enjoy exotic uh, locations, then you can, uh, you, you just pretend to be a new Indiana Jones and you build up your masculinity or your femininity out of your field research, which is true, by the way. But you come on, you are not really a field, uh, you're not really a social scientist if you speak with five people and you talk about five people, right? And so somehow connecting our, um, our, our line of reasoning with philosophy and philosophers is a way of strengthening, a wrong one, by the way, but a way of compensating this sense of inferiority vis-a-vis -vis, uh, much more positive sciences. I do not think that we, I mean, I think we should be proud about what we do for the unique advantages. And I don't think we need really to shield. Cool. What you did, what you did is very cool, Achille. <laughs> but, this is, but this is what we end up often doing. And I wonder whether, whether this is something that I'm thinking out of, out of, well, out of this discussion with you or is something that my other, my colleagues actually um, share. I mean, they, they, actually, they would actually agree with me. I mean, the irony is, uh, to me is that Talking about a lot of philosophy might raise your status as scientists in academia, but it's also what makes people outside of academia think that you don't know anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, exactly. It seems like, you, like when you go and put a lot of emphasis on theory and downplay the empirics, 
it might make you more popular with professors, but among a broader audience, that's precisely what would cause the doubts about the scientific status. If all yeah. you do is say, I went a place and here's what happened, you're like you can't say that person's not a scientist, right? That's just what a scientist ought to do. Yeah, I agree with you, Brian. Totally agree with you. So you know, here's one piece of jargon that's come up a few times today and that I noticed in your work. Uh, this is a word almost no one you know, else you know, that I've heard use it, but used by probably a lot of anthropologists do. It's problematize. I'm going to problematize it. What does that really mean? Uh, yeah, this is um, the weapon of anthropology. Well, basically, pretty much has to do with with, uh, with one of the advantages of anthropology is that it's, uh, it unveils the crack of, as I said, of the grand theory. So what we do is to problematize a common piece, well, uh, a common piece of wisdom. Uh, and the idea is we show them the other side, how the under, under let's say, the, the underrepresented ones, who are often our research participants, the, 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 folk, the, research, the research population of the traditional research population of anthropologists, reflect and think about some about an issue. So we do problematize, we do create a crack into the theory by giving voice to these other to the to the underrepresented ones. I mean, so, but it, does it count as problematizing if you show that a popular view is only 99% true? Or do you have to show that it's like 30% true or, or 5% true? Well, it, it, it depends very much on the type of grand theory. If you say that nobody, nobody right. would be happy with uh, without neoliberalism, and they say, no, look, I mean, there is this tribe that is happy. Well, this is already say something, right? Right. So you start wondering why these people are happy, why they are an exception. Right, but it seems like this is uh, something that gives anthropologists a reason to attribute a view to other people that's much more extreme than they really believe, and then say, ah, now I'm going to problematize it. Okay, so well, if, we, you talk to, <laughs> if you talk to someone who says, yeah, it's really great to get Western vaccines, and then you hear, ah, you're saying that vaccines are the only thing that matters in life, and anyone who doesn't have them is miserable, I'm going to problematize that. It's like, well, Maybe if you listened to me, you'd realize that I didn't really say that it was the only thing that mattered, just that it was a good thing. Uh, yeah, and, I see. And it takes a lot more work to problematize it. <laughs> exactly. This, but this is the problem about democracy, isn't it? And uh, giving voice to everybody. And um, yeah, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, the, no, the idea is to not only simply providing the point of view of other people, but also trying to understand why they say what they say. And you may, I mean, you, we may do research, I may do research on right-wing uh, organization, extreme right-wing organization, without actually stance, without taking, without sharing their, their own political views. But still, it would be an interesting research because it, it provides an insight on why these people think what they think mm -hmm. and why. And as if I disagree with them from a policy from a poli policy oriented point of view, understanding why my enemy, let's between brackets, my enemy thinks what he thinks, he may also help to fight my enemy. Now, enemy is not a word that anthropologists would use, but it's just to give an idea you, uh, of the fact that I made research in people and giving voice to people I actually disagree with, and nonetheless be important the fact that I give give them voice and try to understand what they what why they understand what they understand, what they say. All right, last big question. What is next for Luigi Achille? Oh, what is next? Well, I'm currently doing research, which is uh, exactly not next, but I would like to expand further this research along these lines, my research along, my future research along those lines. And I'm doing research on uh, child for the UNODC, very nice research on child association with so-called terrorist and violent extremist groups.
So I would like to expand my research interest, uh, my future research interest along those lines. So children like teenagers or children like five-year-olds or? Uh, all of them. Well, children is a very tricky word, but anyway, any minor, which which mm -hmm. basically any people below uh, 18 years old. Yeah, it, yeah. it I, also I, involves I, I, people five years old. Oh, so, oh, sorry, please finish. No, I say that this also involves people that are five years old, even though the majority of them presumably are, depending on where the research has, carried, has been carried out, the group with, I mean, uh, is mm, I mean, young, young, young people in their mid-teens, mm -hmm. late teens, I mean, early teens, but not much earlier than that usually, but may also be, may also involve people that are, I mean, in their five, six, seven years old. All right. Now, uh, can I make a request? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what I would love to see is uh, you do some ethnographies, just totally ordered West, ordinary Western businesses. I think if you like illegal markets, you will be quite amazed by illegal one, by, by, by legal ones. So I'm curious anyway, what you would think. Well, I think it would be a very good, uh, it's a while I want to do it, actually research as well in legal market. Uh, I wouldn't mind. I saw a student of mine was doing research um, in, um, in, the, in, in uh, on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And actually, I found probably his research the most dangerous research ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, doing an ethnography on, uh, All right. on, on political, political activism in Amazon. And I would be interested to, 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 to do something along those lines. But perhaps, Brian, I mean, we can have further talks, me and you, right. and you can help me. I mean, uh, so doing uh, work on political activism at Amazon, that's something normal anthropologists would do. I'd yeah. like to just get, like, how does Amazon work? And what do the workers really think? Not the activists. What do those normal workers think and managers? And what do the, what do the delivery people think about what they do? I remember during the pandemic, a couple of times I talked to the Amazon workers and they felt like they were heroes. And like, hey, well, I'm someone who's outside delivering products to people who are hiding in their homes. I'm a hero. So there's, you know, there's just so much more going on. Yeah, you're right. And there is so much going on in, 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 uh, in this, in legal markets. There is some, some, some wrong, some wrong uh, tendency. I mean, of, of, of looking for the exotic or for the different, for the dangerous when you have, you have something very interesting just next, next to you, which is absolutely legal, absolutely accessible, accessible to a certain extent, but sometimes it's just sidelined, especially in anthropological analysis and inquiry, because we, we, we go, we fish for the exotic ones. We still are tied to our origin. We, we were born of, um, well, I mean, we were of the colonial in enterprise. I mean, to me, what's amazing is how professors are, are, are so self-righteous and condemning businesses when if you just look inside the university, there's so much ugly stuff that happens right here. You just, if you just want to see strict hierarchies in a caste system, <laughs> just look at academic yeah. degrees. And it's like, hey, you know, <laughs> get your own house in order before you criticize everybody else. All right, yeah. so yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I will end the conversation there. Again, the Molte Grazie Luigi. And I am really looking forward to Luigi's forthcoming book on the anthropology of Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brian. Uh, it's been fantastic. It Thank you very much. And uh, who knows, it would be thrilling if we get you out to the Salem Center in Texas. So uh, well, I'll, that'll be, happen. I'll, be very, I'll be very pleased to come to visit you. All right, signing off. Thanks a lot, Luigi.